Would you turn with me in a Bible uh, to Exodus chapter 1? Uh, would you turn with me in a Bible to Exodus chapter 1? Uh, Exodus is the second book in the Bible. So if you see Genesis, go, go forward, and you'll get to Exodus next. Uh, so last week, we began our journey through this book. I'm, uh, some people are in the back are giving me an ear. Is it test one, two, test one, two? Hmm. Nope. Um, all right. You guys can try to work on it. If you can't fix it in a minute, I'll get that one down there or just stand down there. Um, uh, so last week we began our series in the book of Exodus, which is called From Bondage to Belonging, because that's the arc of the story of this book. Uh, the people of Israel begin in bondage in Egypt, in bondage under Pharaoh. Uh, but God brings them out of Egypt so that they might belong to God, so that they might obey his laws and dwell with him as his people. Okay, I think that's, uh, that's good. We got that. All right, so here we go. We're reading today chapter 1, verse... Uh, I'm actually going to start with verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7, that's the last verse we read last week that sets the stage for what happens next through to chapter 2, verse 10. So uh, feel free to follow along in the Pew Bibles if you would like to. Uh, or listen to the reading here. Exodus chapter 1, beginning at verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, 
and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Have you ever found yourself in a situation that seems to go from bad to worse? Perhaps you felt taken advantage of, or beaten down, left alone to fend for yourself. Perhaps you're exhausted by unrelenting demands at work, or you've been unfairly criticized or blamed, or perhaps the health and safety of your children or your loved ones is threatened. And maybe you hope that circumstances will change, but for a long time they don't, and perhaps you wonder, where is God in all this mess, and what might he be up to? Now, even if that's not your situation right now, Many Christians around the world today, many Christians throughout history, probably even some people right here, have found themselves in such situations. Take one example. Uh, Back in the 1830s, the teenage Frederick Douglass would walk down to the shore of the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland, and he would watch the ships sailing in the distance. He had never enjoyed that kind of freedom because he had been born a slave. He had seen and endured bloody beatings and iron chains, Uh, at the hands of professing Christian masters. In fact, his most outwardly religious masters had been the cruelest ones. Uh, Now, he had recently found faith in Jesus, and the book of the Bible that was most helpful to him was the book of Job. Uh, Talks about someone who suffered very intensely. He was also helped by meeting some free black Methodists uh, who uh, shared with him about uh, the gospel of Jesus. And so as A new Christian, he would walk down to the shore on Sunday mornings, one of the few times in the week where he had some liberty to go where he wanted and do as he pleased, and he writes this, With no audience but the Almighty, I would pour out my soul's complaint. You ships are loosed from your moorings and are free. I am fast in my chains and am a slave. The glad ship is gone. She hides in the dim distance. I am left in the hottest hell of unending slavery. Oh, God, save me. Oh, God, deliver me. Let me be free. Is there any God? Why am I a slave? I will run away. I will not stand it. And when you read this part of Exodus, or especially if you've experienced anything like this part of Exodus describes, you might have some similar feelings. Or you might be asking a similar question. Where is God when things seem to be going from bad to worse. Because if you look at this passage on the surface, the first thing that we see in this passage is Pharaoh's deadly schemes. Three increasingly vicious attacks 
launched against God's people. Now, the first of Pharaoh's deadly schemes was slavery in verses 8 through 14. Verse 8 says, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, Joseph's story was told in the closing chapters of Genesis. He was one of Jacob's 12 sons. He and his family had come down from Canaan uh, to Egypt. Joseph became a high official in the Egyptian government. And at the time, at, in Joseph's time, the pharaohs who ruled Egypt uh, were known as the Hyksos pharaohs. Uh, they were not Egyptian natives. They were a foreign dynasty who had uh, come and uh, taken power and ruled over a large part of Egypt for about 100, 150 years. And one of these pharaohs uh, gave Joseph's family, who were from Canaan, also from outside of Egypt, attractive land where they worked as farmers and shepherds. And everything was good between Joseph's family members and the Egyptian pharaoh for quite some time. But then Joseph's generation died off and a new dynasty of native Egyptian pharaohs drove out the Hyksos rulers, and they said, we're in charge of Egypt because we are from here, and we've always been from here. And that new administration had no loyalty to Joseph. So when it says they did not know Joseph, it doesn't just mean they had never heard of him or they didn't know the facts about him. It means they weren't loyal to him. So most of the time in the Old Testament, when the Bible talks about knowing someone, it doesn't just mean knowing that they exist. It means knowing them in a uh, personal, committed way, in a loyalty, uh, having a loyal relationship with that person. Uh, so the same word, know, is used in many places for the, us the union between husband and wife, the kind that produces a child. Uh, so, uh, and, and, or here, it's used in the term, in the sense of, uh, loyalty and commitment to the promises that had been made uh, with Joseph in previous generations. So the new Pharaoh had no loyalty to Joseph and his family. He saw the people of Israel not as an asset, but as a threat. Uh, and he said, they are going to ally with our enemies and escape. Uh, or that word could also be translated, uh, perhaps take over. So one thing that we see immediately is that unlike the promises of God, which don't change, the promises of Pharaoh and of any human government are always subject to change from one generation to the next, from one administration to the next. And that's why our ultimate hope must always be rooted in the Lord and his unchanging character and not in uh, things that are subject to change in this world. So the people of Israel found themselves in a bad situation. Instead of being under Pharaoh's protection, they were under his suspicion Instead of having the freedom to make a living independently as farmers and shepherds, they were now forced laborers, building Pharaoh's uh, military empire. The word store cities in verse 11 could also be translated fortified military settlements. Uh, so Pharaoh's strategy was oppress the Israelites as a means of population control. So practically, what did this look like? Well, you take the men away from their families for long periods of time, have them building these new cities in the middle of nowhere on the edge of Egypt. Uh, that keeps them away from their wives, makes it harder to reproduce. Also, it means the farming and livestock back home will suffer because fewer people are around to take care of the land. And uh, Pharaoh and his overseers would work the men ruthlessly until they were weak and sick and eventually more of them would die off. So that was Pharaoh's strategy for dealing with the Israelites. And you see this especially in verse 13 and 14. 
The word work or service is repeated five times. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field and all their work. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. One commentator said each of those words in verse 13 and 14 is like another blow from a slave driver's whip. And these verses are not an exaggeration. Uh, We do have an ancient Egyptian document, uh, not necessarily from this exact time, but describing the cruelty of Pharaoh's officials. So here's an excerpt from that document. It's not from the Bible, but just another historical document uh, describing this. It says, the scribe surveys the harvest. Attendants are behind him with staffs and guards with clubs. They say to the farmer, give grain. The farmer says, there is none. The farmer is beaten savagely. He is bound, thrown in the well, submerged head down. His wife is bound in his presence. His children are in fetters. That's the kind of cruelty and senseless discrimination that the Israelites experienced here. And that was only the beginning. In verse 15, it gets even worse. Pharaoh summons the Hebrew midwives. They're probably not the only two midwives, uh, but rather the head midwives. And he says to them, when you're doing your job, kill the baby boys, but let the girls live. Because if you kill off the baby boys, the girls will be easier to dominate and control. And when that didn't work, Pharaoh tells all the Egyptians in verse 22, every son that is born to the Hebrews, throw him into the Nile. Now to us, that sounds obviously inhumane. But in ancient Egypt, the Nile River was worshipped as a god. And so Pharaoh might well have presented his command with a sort of religious justification. The Nile is summoning Hebrew boys. And we better keep the Nile happy. You see, rulers like Pharaoh always try to make things that are evil and destructive appear good and reasonable and necessary. And this did not only happen in ancient Egypt, it has happened many times over in the course of human history, and it continues to happen today. Things that are destructive and evil and contrary to God's good purposes are made to appear good and reasonable and even necessary. And the reason why, Pharaoh, uh, why this is the case is that these weren't just the schemes of one human Pharaoh. Behind Pharaoh's schemes were the schemes of Satan himself. The Bible calls Satan the father of lies, the enemy who seeks to still steal and kill and destroy. You see, every one of Pharaoh's schemes was an attack on God's life-giving purposes. From the very beginning, the Bible tells us that God made human beings in his image, It's right in the heart of the first chapter in the Bible. One of the first things that God wants us to know is that every person is made in God's image, male and female alike, young and old alike, from the tiniest baby in the womb to the most vulnerable child to the most frail and bedridden elderly person whose life is almost gone. Every person, no matter how physically strong or weak they are, is made in God's image and God cares for them and wants us to care for them. So that's the first thing we see this morning, Pharaoh's deadly schemes against the people of God, but we also see in this passage God's life-giving interventions. That's the second thing we see. And God's li- and when you first read this passage, uh, you might not notice all of God's life-giving interventions because there are no words from God 
No prophetic words spoken in this passage. God doesn't appear. No angels appear. No blinding flashes of light. No explanations either for why things are as bad as they are and why they go from bad to worse for as long as they do. Now, back in, if you read Genesis, back in Genesis 15, God had told Abraham, your descendants will be enslaved in a foreign country for many years. And then in Genesis 46, God had told Jacob, Abraham's grandson, that it was his plan for the family to go down to Egypt. But that was hundreds of years ago. Even if some of the people of Israel remembered those words, that was a long, long time ago that God had said those things. And now God seemed to be silent. If you read this entire section, there's only one action that is explicitly ascribed to God in verse 20 and 21. It says God dealt well with the midwives. And because the midwives feared God, God gave them families. So God allowed two midwives, presumably older and previously infertile women, most likely they had the freedom to be midwives, to go whenever the baby, they were needed, whenever the baby came, because they weren't uh, taking care of uh, children at home of their own. Uh, God allowed these two midwives to have children of their own. And I say, well, okay, nice for them, but what about everybody else who's still enslaved? What about all these bigger problems that God doesn't seem to be immediately addressing? But here's what I think God wants us to see in this passage, is that even though it might not seem like it at first glance, God is present and active and working out his plans for good, intervening for his life-giving purposes in every part of this story. You see, in response to each of Pharaoh's deadly schemes, God intervenes. So that's what I want us to see this morning. That's the main point of this story, is that Pharaoh schemes, but God intervenes. So let me show you, in response to each of Pharaoh's deadly schemes, how God intervenes for the sake of, for the good of his people. So first... In the midst of oppression, God caused supernatural growth in verse 8 through 14. And you notice this in verse 12, which says, The more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Now, that's not what you would expect to hear if you just read the rest of the paragraph. You would expect to hear the reverse. You would expect to hear this. The more the people multiplied, the more they were oppressed. That would be just a natural and normal pattern. Right? An immigrant population grows more rapidly than the majority culture. The people in the majority culture feel threatened. Those people are trying to take over our country. They're moving into our neighborhood. Let's keep them down. That's a very normal pattern. You can find zillions of examples throughout history when that's happened in one form or another. And the end of verse 12 says it was happening there. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now later on in Deuteronomy, Moses told the people of Israel, when you guys have your own land, don't treat newcomers that way. He said, love the foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. He said, you know what it's like. You know how you were treated when you were outsiders. So don't be hostile, be hospitable. Right? As God's people, we should be hospitable whenever a new person walks into this church. Right? No matter if they look like you or don't look like you, no matter if they're older or younger or what, whatever, uh, we want to be a hospitable and welcoming people because God has welcomed us through Jesus Christ. But the first half of verse 12, getting back to the first half of verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, 
Again, it's not describing just a natural human pattern that happens in this fallen world. It's describing God's supernatural intervention. Even in the most humanly unlikely circumstances, God the Creator blesses his people with abundant life. Even though they're being increasingly oppressed, God makes them, causes supernatural growth. And if you read the history of the church, there are many times where this pattern is often repeated. Through periods of affliction and persecution, Jesus grows his church in supernatural and unexplainable ways. So 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, the Apostle Paul wrote, I'm staying in Ephesus for now because a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. You see, Paul wasn't intimidated by his opponents. He says, God's doing a great work here. And yeah, there's a bunch of opponents too. So we'll have some trouble, but we're also going to see some growth because God's doing a good thing among us. Or later on in the early church Around the third century, a guy named Tertullian, uh, one of the early church fathers, said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, the Roman emperors would just keep putting Christians to death and the church just kept on multiplying. And people would say, how is this happening? We would expect the opposite to happen, that everybody would be intimidated into not joining it. And you can see it in the modern world too. Uh, just one example, uh, China became a communist nation in 1949, and at that time, all the Western missionaries were expelled. Uh, so all the Christian missionaries from every other country uh, were, were sent away, and at that time, there were about 4 million Christians in China. And for a long time, uh, it was hard for the rest of the world to know what was going on in the Chinese Christian church. And people thought, boy, they're being repressed, and uh, they, they must be sort of dying off. But by many estimates, there are at least 50 to 100 million Christians in China today. So that's growing from 4 million to, let's say, 50 million. It's probably more like 100, but that's 12 times growth over 70 years uh, during, despite intense persecution at times and ongoing legal restrictions. Uh, so there are many examples you can see where in the midst of oppression or persecution, God causes supernatural growth among his people. Uh, and uh, many people have experienced this on a personal level too. Uh, sometimes people come to me and they say, I feel like I'm being spiritually attacked or oppressed. Um, now, we don't wanna over-spiritualize every sort of normal challenge that comes our way. Uh, but I do think sometimes this is a reality in this fallen world. Sometimes we are spiritually attacked or oppressed. Uh, sometimes that's, that's a reality. And, uh, you know, if that's the case, there's usually one of two things that's going on. One possibility is that if we are engaged in a pattern of habitual sin, we're doing something that we know is against God's word and his commandments, and we're just going on with it and not trying to change it, then... Uh, we may be giving the devil a foothold in our life. The Apostle Paul warns us against this. So that could mean harboring bitterness and grudges against people or holding on to arrogant pride or uh, being in a sexually immoral relationship and just continuing in that. So if, uh, if, if that's the case, if we're engaged in a pattern of habitual sin against God, the Bible says, confess and forsake your sin and turn to Jesus now. And don't hold on to that, because uh, that's not a good place 
to be in. But here's the other possibility. Many times people feel like they're being attacked and oppressed and they're saying, you know, I, there, there isn't any, I, I've asked God, cleanse my heart and forgive me when I fall short and I need your help every day. And, you know, there isn't anything that's sort of an obvious, uh, obvious disobedience. Here's the other possibility. You're on the right track and that's why you're experiencing some spiritual attack and opposition because you're seeking first the kingdom of God, and so the devil's not happy about that because you're making progress in the right direction, and you're trying to grow, and you're trying to seek God, and you're trying to love other people who might be hard to love at times. And God's pleased with that. And if that's where you are, God wants you to know that even if you feel spiritually attacked and oppressed, look at this passage, God causes supernatural growth. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And many people can testify to this. In fact, if I, I look back at my own life, I think some of the times when I've experienced the most joy and peace and love of God and sense of God's presence being closest to me were some of the hardest times in my life. And many people can testify to that. Some of the hardest times are some of the times when God's grace and peace and mercy become so real. And you know that no matter what you have to go through, God is close to you. Um, you know, one of the reasons God allows affliction to come into our lives is so we don't get too comfortable here in this world. Suffering helps us look for our Savior and find that his grace is sufficient even in our weakness. So that's the first way we see God intervening, by causing supernatural growth. The second way we see God intervening is raising up courageous women of faith. So second attack of Pharaoh was he targeted the Israelite, uh, not just the Israelite men, but also the boys. And how did God counter Pharaoh's attack? Through courageous women of faith who feared God and not men. So verse 17 is a key verse in this second section. Verse 15 through 21 is the second section. And verse 17 says the midwives feared God and they didn't do what the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. And this involved for them taking a significant risk because Pharaoh in the ancient world was seen as a god. He was literally worshipped as a god. He was seen as an absolute ruler and everybody would, people would bow down before him and he was, it was expected that whatever he told you to do, you would do it. That's how things rolled in ancient Egypt. That's how people normally thought and behaved, but not these midwives. And they had every reason to fear Pharaoh. I mean, they were Hebrews after all. So uh, they had no legal protections. They had no court of appeal, uh, but they recognized that there was a higher authority than Pharaoh. And they said, we must obey God rather than Pharaoh. Now, when Pharaoh summoned them and he said, why aren't you doing what I told you to do? They had a ready answer. I mean, look at their answer in verse 19. Isn't it sort of clever? Look, we couldn't do anything to stop it even if we tried. Right? So people have sort of debated, uh, you know, to what extent was that true? Perhaps. I don't, you know, to what extent were they saying, uh, who knows? Um, the point is, uh, you know, in the, it, when you read the story, Pharaoh doesn't have a response for them. Their answer silences Pharaoh. God's pleased with their answer because they're committed to preserving innocent lives. Verse 20 says, God dealt well with the midwives. 
And because they feared God, he gave them families of, our, of their own. Now again, in the big picture, that might seem like an insignificant detail. But God wants us to know that he cares not just about macroeconomic trends, you know, or the big picture of the world, but God cares about the details of our individual lives. Uh, maybe you've been trusting God through a long season of infertility. Or maybe you wish you could find a spouse to start a family together. God sees. God knows. And the, and the Bible says God blesses those who fear him, who trust him. Sometimes God blesses those who fear him with marriage and biological children. Sometimes God blesses those who fear him with the opportunity to adopt children or provide foster care. Sometimes God blesses those who fear him with the opportunity to be a spiritual mother or a spiritual father, uh, to, to mentor and, and build into younger people, even if they're not your biological blood relatives. God sees and God knows, and God is faithful and merciful to women and to people like these midwives who found themselves in a bind with nobody to protect them, but they feared God and not men. And not only did God give them families of their own, he bestowed upon them the honor of having their names preserved in his holy word. Do you notice that the Pharaoh is not named? In fact, scholars sort of debate which Pharaoh this was. There's a couple of possibilities out there. But Pharaoh's not named because the author of Exodus is not trying to give honor to Pharaoh. He's wanting to honor those whom God wants to honor. And God honored these midwives even more than the most powerful ruler in Egypt. Shifra and Pua will never be forgotten. So even if you're all alone, even if you have nobody else beside you, Jesus is standing with you and for you. That's the second thing we see. Uh, God raises up women of faith and courage. And finally, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, God intervenes by delivering the baby who would one day deliver his people. So chapter 2, the story narrows from all the people of Israel who were oppressed uh, to the midwives of the Hebrews, to a three-month-old baby, Moses. His parents hide him for three months, but the time comes, his cries are too loud, they can't hide him in their home any longer, so his mom makes a covered basket. In fact, the same word is used in uh, the book of Genesis to describe the ark in which God preserved Noah and his family through the flood waters. And, and, and right here, uh, God provides a safe uh, place for baby Moses to be preserved. Now, what Moses' parents were not abandoning their three-month-old child, right? She didn't put him in the river and say, float, float away down the river. No, she put him in the reeds, so he's not going to float away down the river. And his sister stands at a distance, right, somewhere where no, she's not going to arouse any suspicions, but she's going to keep an eye on him. And maybe when the coast is clear, mom will come and nurse the child. They'll they're, they're going to take it one step at a time, but they're committed to doing whatever they can to take care of this baby. And of course, by the side of the river, you have you know, noises of perhaps birds or the river flowing, uh, so a baby's cries wouldn't necessarily be noticed, uh, except something they don't expect to happen is Pharaoh's daughter shows up. And at first you think, dun, dun, dun. oh, it's, this is not going to go well. Here's the daughter of the king who said, throw all the babies in the river and get, get rid of all the baby boys. And here she comes. But she turns out to be, instead of an instrument of death, an instrument of life and protection. 
God delivers Moses from the water, not through a fellow Hebrew, but through an Egyptian, an Egyptian princess, um, who was willing to take a risk because she had compassion. See, God's plan of salvation often begins in unexpected places. Here, it's a baby lying in, a, in an ark in the reeds. Many years later, it would be a baby lying in a manger on a cold night. Sometimes God, God's redemptive plans seem to hang on a thin and fragile thread, but the hand that holds that thread is a strong and steady hand. And if you have entrusted yourself and your present and your future to Jesus Christ, he's holding on to you no matter how weak you may feel and no matter how tenuous your circumstances are. She named the child Moses. Moses was a common Egyptian name. It just means son. But it sounds like the Hebrew word masha, which means to draw out. Moses was drawn out of the water, delivered from the water. And one day he would deliver God's people through the waters of the Red Sea. So you see, what we see throughout this passage is that every time Pharaoh schemed, in response to every one of Pharaoh's deadly schemes, God intervened in a life-giving way. When the people were enslaved, God blessed them with supernatural growth. When the boys were threatened, God raised up women of faith and courage to defend them. And when Pharaoh told every Egyptian to throw every Hebrew boy into the Nile, his own daughter rescued the one who would rescue them all. So what Pharaoh meant for evil, God turned for good, each and every last time. That's what we see here, and that's what we see when we look at Jesus Christ. Because when you look at Jesus' life on earth, he was attacked. From the beginning, when Jesus was a boy, there was a King Herod who wanted to kill him. And his parents protected him by taking him down to Egypt, actually. When Jesus grew up, he was tempted by Satan in the desert. On the night before he was crucified, he was betrayed. And on the darkest day of all, he was nailed to a tree. And on the outside, it might seem like the deadly schemes are winning. But everything that Satan meant for evil, God turned for good. God protected Jesus as a boy from Herod's deadly schemes. God sustained him by the power of the Holy Spirit through his temptation in the wilderness. When Jesus was betrayed, he remained faithful. He stayed the course. And when he was crucified, he died to take our sins away. And then he triumphed over death on the third day. So brothers and sisters, God is present and God is active even when it doesn't seem like it on the surface, even when he seems to be silent for a long time and is only active perhaps in the smallest ways that we can see he's taking what was intended for evil and harm and turning it to accomplish his good and glorious purpose. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are a God who intervenes for good for the sake of preserving and uh, life. And we thank you for how you have not only preserved our physical lives, but that you have made a way for us uh, to know you and have eternal life. And an eternal life that doesn't just begin after we die, but it begins now through having a relationship with you and being connected to you. Lord Jesus, give us perseverance when we are facing hard situations, when we feel spiritually attacked or oppressed, 
Give us compassion for those who are in such hard situations. And we pray that ultimately, and we pray and we trust that ultimately your good purposes will triumph. In Jesus' name, amen.